Today our text is taken from the sixth chapter of Job, verse 14. Job 6:14. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, today is it's always fun when we start a new series. Uh, today we're jumping into a brand new series for the new year called Bringing Peace to the Culture War. Um, <clears throat> the scripture actually speaks a lot about the advancement of God's kingdom. The interesting part about that is that the expansion that the Bible speaks about isn't from the top down. It's not God just showing up and forcing everyone to kind of submit and succumb to his supremacy. It's not like that at all. Instead, it's actually kind of an organic redemption that comes into the lives of God's people. In other words, the advancement of the kingdom comes through you. And now today, what that looks like is for us stepping up and being able to bring peace and bring redemption into our everyday lives. It looks like us actually learning how, how to do that. And so in this series, we will be engaging a number of current views in our culture in order to see how the Christian worldview can actually bring real progress by changing the ways that we think and, and live in the way in our everyday lives. You know, we'll be looking at uh, topics like friendship and work, poverty, prisons, and sex. Uh, the last part should keep you coming. Um, but what we're trying to do is to show you that a Christian worldview actually makes you incredibly intentional in all of those diverse parts of your life. It actually gives you kind of a roadmap of what redemption looks like as you step really into your life and you bring peace into what is very much considered to be a, a culture of war in which we live. Um, today what we're going to do is to consider the, in, the issue of friendship by, by looking at the state of friendship, by looking at the necessity of friendship, and lastly, the nature of true friendship. And I think by looking at this, you're going to be able to see, if it does to you what it did to me in, in doing all this research and study this week, it's going to probably cause you to admit you're not near the friend you think you are. I, I would venture to say that it's going to cause you to kind of reevaluate the friendships that you have in your life. They're, they probably aren't what you think they are either. Now, kind of a shameless plug here for a moment. One of the most significant things that we do here at L2 in our redemption classes is to try to help you reassess how you look at Scripture. Does it really speak to these various parts of your life? That's know your Bible. The second part is really knowing yourself. Now, in that second part of this, we typically encourage each of you to fill out what, what we call a relational proximity map. It's five spheres of relationship that we, each and every one of us, have in our lives. Lane five is the, the world at large. Lane four are people that you come to know, so they can't be complete strangers to you anymore. Lane three is a lane that begins your friendship lanes. But lane three are people that you would consider to be friends. We're going to look at that here in a moment, different types of friends in that group. Um, lane two would be closer friends, and lane one would be those people in your life that are the closest to you. 
Now, the easiest differentiation between lanes three, two, and one is that if a person in lane one had an emergency at night and they didn't call you, it would be very upsetting to you. It would be a challenge and kind of toxic towards what you believe to be true about the friendship. If, if a person in lane two called you, um, it wouldn't upset you if they did or didn't call. But if a person in lane three called you, you're wondering, why don't you have anybody else in your life? And so that kind of, I, I know that's a little bit nuanced, but what you're going to find out is that when we take a look at friendship, you're going to find exactly what we find in the Bible. The idea of friend and friendship throughout the Scripture is used in so, so many diverse ways that it defies really kind of a sharp, tight definition. And so I want to begin by looking at the state of friendship, and this is just kind of a, kind of a satellite view of what's going on in our culture with some of the research. I think all of us have to admit that good friendships are truly rare. We don't have near, of the, near as many of them as we, as we, we think. I, I, I tend to think that as we get older, we can look across and kind of survey our lives, and we can look across and find typically a handful of people. I can remember listening to R.C. Sproul, and he, he said, out of the people, that all the acquaintances you've known in your life, the majority of those you wouldn't consider friends, but those that you consider your friends, of those that you know really get you. If you need more than the fingers of one hand to count them, he said, you're very fortunate. And I think that kind of captures the spirit of what I hope to be able to put in front of you this morning. As I said, we all know what benefits come from having true friends. I think we, we all know that. But in spite of that, our culture is kind of morphing its idea of friends. Um, I, I, I know many of you are probably already thinking of what Facebook has done and how some of you in this room might have hundreds and hundreds of friends on Facebook, but you're still alone. That is kind of the situation that I think all of us have to acknowledge, that it's really begun to change our ideas of what friendship and friends really are. Um, I, I would like to start by giving you kind of a reliable definition taken from the Oxford Dictionary. Um, the Oxford Dictionary defines friend as a person with whom one has a bond of mutual affection, typically one exclusive of sexual or family relations. Now, immediately you read that, and we can think of friends with benefits that would kind of defy that definition, but I think that definition is pretty solid. Now, there were nearly 5,000 people that liked this definition on the ever-reliable Urban Dictionary, and this is what, how they defined it, which I thought was fascinating. Um, they define friends as people who are aware of how retarded you, you are and still manage to be seen with you in public. People who make you laugh till you pee your pants. People, I ran this by a lot of people to make sure it was okay, and my wife even thought it was going to be okay, so just hang with me. Um, people who cry for you when one of your special items disappear. When you don't have enough money for ice cream, they chip in. A friend is, friends are those who know all your internet passwords, who would never make you cry just to be mean. Now, obviously that definition was written by a chick, right? <laughs> Obviously, hopefully. If it's not, you need to call me. Um, but that captures it, doesn't it? There's something about the weirdness of that, uh, that definition that kind of touches upon 
what I think all of us know it to be. Now, as simple as the concept, uh, concept of friendship may be, as, as intuitive as we might feel towards that, it's surprising to look at some of this research because Americans tend to consistently overestimate the quality of their friendships. Now, Carlin Flora wrote, wrote this, and I'm going to be quoting a lot from her research this morning. She said, friendship looked at through a clear and wide lens. In, in other words, if you really open your eyes, is far messier and more lopsided than is often portrayed. The first cold splash on the idealized notion of friendship is the data showing that only about half of friendships are reciprocal. This is shocking to people since research confirms that we actually assume nearly all our friendships are reciprocal. Now, what that quote forces you to realize is that you're probably 50% wrong. Who you would put down on your proximity map this morning is going to have one out of every two people that shouldn't be there. And if they are there, maybe they shouldn't be in the lanes they are. Now, I can tell you as a counselor for all these years and working with many of you over the years, um, I can tell you that one of the, the problems endemic with Christians is that we tend to have too many people in our land. Now, what I mean by that, some of you might say, well, is it possible to be too friendly? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when you overpopulate lanes two and lane one of your life, what that does is make you kind of a bad friend. You don't have all the bandwidth that you need to be that kind of a friend. And because you can't bring yourself to demote somebody into another lane, it compromises all the rich friendships that you won't turn loose of. And so there's a, there's a watering down of the whole system if we're not honest with one another. And so I, I thought that that was spectacular in that research because it just simply says that most of us are 50% wrong. Over half your friendships are not reciprocal, which that's just a fancy term that says that, uh, that things don't come back to you. And so, now, when you look at Flora's research, she identifies three types of friendships that tend to present the greatest challenges to us. The first are ambivalent friendships. Now, she defines an ambivalent friendship as basically friendships that we make out of kind of a strange pursuit of some benefit. And Proverbs 19 and verse 6 touches upon that. And it describes that kind of a friendship when it says, many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend of a man who gives gifts. Now, she offers this further description of an ambivalent relationship. And she says, ambivalent relationships in social science parlance um, are characterized by interdependence and conflict. You have many positive and negative feelings toward these people. You might think twice about picking up when they call. This would probably be a person, according to my definition, of being lane three. Um, these relationships turn out to be, to, to be common, too. Close to half of one's important social network members are identified as ambivalent. Granted, more of those are family members whom we're stuck with than friends, but still, for friendships, it's another push off the pedestal. See, what she's saying is that we tend to crowd our lives with people that we perceive will advance our cause. We tend to gravitate towards people that we perceive that, okay, this is kind of a return on investment type thing. I'm willing to give to you in order to get back. And so an ambivalent friendship is a friendship that has 
it has parts to it that would, we would consider to be characterized by friendship, but it also has a bunch of tension in it. And the friendship just gets stuck in this ambivalence. Now, research study among teenagers concluded that people really do want to have friends that are popular. But those that are higher up on the social hierarchy have, have their pick among friends. And that tells you that we tend to perceive social strata in such a way that it influences who we pick as friends. Now, another study highlighted in the New York Times found that most people have Facebook friends who have, on an average, more friends than they do. And so we tend to gravitate towards people who we perceive kind of promises some benefit. We put up with the crap, and we put up with the, the kind of the twistedness and the, the frustration of it all because we think in the end it's going to be worth it. Now, the second kind of friendship that she says is really challenging to us are good friends that really actually are pretty bad. Now, a good friend that is bad describes a friendship that appears to have all the right qualities, loyalty, reliability, interesting companionship, but these kinds of friendship also possess characteristics that can become toxic. And Flora describes this kind of friendship this way. She says, we know, social, we know through social network research that depressed friends make it more likely that you'll be depressed. Obese friends make it more likely that you'll become obese. And friends who smoke or drink a lot make it more likely that you'll smoke and drink more. Other, quote, good friends might have or start to have goals, values, or habits that misalign with your current or emerging ones. They certainly haven't done anything to you, but they aren't a group who validates who you are or that will effortlessly lift you up towards your aims over time. Stay with them and you'll be walking against the wind. That is really an interesting, as I read that definition, it caused me to remember a, a very good friend I had when I was in high school. Um, we were both wrestlers together. We had gone undefeated when we were, um, when we were freshmen. And we had gotten into some trouble together. And I remember my dad just sat down and he said, you can't, you can't be his friend anymore. And I can remember the incongruence in my mind thinking, I actually have to sever this relationship. And it never was the same after that. I obeyed my father and I, I actually withdrew from that friendship, but this is the kind of friendship it was. We, we, we really weren't good together. The effect that the two of us had on each other was way worse than the sum of the parts. Now, the last classification of friendship is an interesting one because I think the, most of you are going to find this is true as well. And Flora just calls this frenemies. And in short, frenemies refer to people that are actually enemies who for whatever reason you remain friends with. In other words, you, these are distinguished from ambivalent friendships because there's no good in them. But you still keep them in lane three or perhaps even lane two. And now she, she gives this description. She says, frenemies are perhaps a separate variety in that they are neatly multi-layered. Multi Friendliness atop rivalry, rivalry or dislike. As opposed to the ambivalent friend, uh, relationships, um, there's an admixture of love, hate, annoyance, pity, and devotion in those, and tenderness. 
Plenty of people have attested to the motivating force of a frenemy at work, as well as in the realms of romance and parenting. What she's basically saying is, we don't even like these people, but for some reason we maintain friendships with them. We go to staff meetings with them and we sit there and we, we can't stand it when they talk. We can't stand it when they're put on our team and they have to contribute to the report that we're doing. And for whatever reason, they stay in this classification of friendships. Those are challenging. So basically all of this tells us that today perhaps, like no other period in history, friend, the idea of friend has morphed into a term that we use in reference to several very different types of relationships. Now, it brings us to the second part, the necessity of friendship. If friendship can be that potentially harmful, why bother with it? Now, the verse that we looked at from Job chapter 6 and verse 14, it simply said, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. That verse has two assertions in it that I think really merit our consideration and that actually speak deeply to this idea of the necessity of friendship. The first assertion is a warning about withholding or failing to extend kindness to a friend who is in need. So it's a little scenario saying, okay, here's the situation where a person's friend stood by and did nothing when they were in need. Now the term for kindness that's used there is a term that's used of, it's in, in Hebrew it's a term that refers to God's loving kindness, His faithfulness, His mercy. And so this is talking about the deepest form of human interaction. And so the first assertion is basically just like you depicting or looking in a little scenario and there's a person in need who has a friend who stands by and does nothing. Now the second assertion is the one that carries the biggest punch because it basically says that for you to do that is to forsake the fear of the Lord. Now that's just an old Hebraic phrase that just simply meant is to turn your back on your faith. Now, that's remarkable when you put those two together because you have a common situation in which we kind of stand back and I'm not talking about situations where you don't know what to do. You, you're, you're just kind of trying to figure stuff out and things unfold so quickly that after they're all said and done, you're thinking, oh, I should have done something. This is a situation where you have a person that is literally withholding kindness. And the second part of that verse is basically saying, it's, that's tantamount to you rejecting your faith in Christianity. It's like walking away. So the necessity of friendship very easily is established as a vital component of your duty as a Christian. As those who profess to believe the gospel and to have put our faith in Jesus as our Savior, we should get friendship as much or better than anyone. Now, when you take a step back and you begin to look at recent research supporting the necessity of friendship, it's very, very interesting. I, I think particularly for those of you that are millennials. Um, in spite of the trend that, that millennials are, are seeking more and deeper meaning from their lives, it appears that most millennials haven't discovered the necessity of friendship. As much as they have been able to kind of withdraw themselves from kind of a rank materialism that basically just says material is important and so those of you that have the greatest control over the greatest amount of material, you win the game. 
Millennials kind of have figured that game out, but they don't seem to have figured out friendship. Now, a recent research study just showed that in a survey that where millennials were asked what, they, what was the most important life goals that they had, eight out of 10, 80%, said that a major life goal for them was to be rich. And out of that same group, 50%, one out of every two, said a major life goal was to be famous. And so in spite of all the, the narrative that you're listening to, about, okay, we want our lives to be freed from the encumbrances of things, which I think looks like not buying as many things, but the things you do buy are really nice. That's why I think millennials have figured out, but they don't seem to have really gotten a hold of this. Now, Robert Waldinger is the director of what's called the Harvard, Harvard Study of Adult Development. It's a study that has been tracking 724 men for over 75 years. I mean, they have tens of thousands of pages of documentation over these lives. And recently, they went back and they asked their, li if they asked their wives if they had participated, and they said, well, finally. But, but 75 years ago, it wasn't a, wasn't a big deal. And so this is probably the, the, the most extensive longitudinal study that's ever been done. 724 men, 75 years. Now, this is what Waldinger said. He said, so what have we learned what are the lessons that come from the tens of thousands of pages of information that we have generated on these lives? Well, the lessons aren't about wealth or fame or working harder and harder. The clearest message that we get from this 75-year study is this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. Social connections are really good for us, and loneliness kills it turns out that people who are more socially connected to family, to friends, to community are happier. They're physically healthier, and they live longer than people who are less well-connected. And the experience of loneliness turns out to be toxic. People who are more isolated than they want to be from others. I thought that was really interesting because some of us are isolated because we want to be. But anyway, <laughs> that's a little side note. <laughs> I couldn't refrain from that. Um, and. The experience, uh, the experience of loneliness turns out to be toxic. People who are more isolated than they want to be from others find that they are less happy, their health declines earlier in midlife, their brain functioning declines sooner, and they live shorter lives than people who are not lonely. And we know that you can be lonely in a crowd, and you can be lonely in a marriage. It's not just the number of friends that you have, and it's not whether you are in a committed relationship, but it's the quality of your close relationships that matters. That's astounding research. 75 years. Man, if you really push into it, uh, I, I have Waldinger's um, TED Talk uh, in my sermon notes that you can research. And it's, it's a fascinating TED Talk to listen to him speak to some of what we're beginning to discover. But foundationally, he's just saying, if you don't have good relationships, it's going to compromise your health. If you don't have good relationships, you're not going to have the emotional well-being that you seek. It's simply impossible. So as Christians, living consistently with what we claim to believe, it necessitates our, that we have deep and meaningful relationships with others. That's the first necessity. And this recent research confirms 
the necessity of, of meaningful and deep relationships of all types for our physical and emotional well-being. So this brings us to this piece, most important piece. What is the nature of true friendship? If you were to boil it down to its most essential qualities, what would they be? What does Christianity say about cultivating these types of relationships? To some degree, to some degree I think you have to admit that it depends. It depends. After all the work that I've done in Africa, I can tell you a friendship in Africa is very different than a friendship here. A friendship today is different than a friendship would have been and what would have looked like 20 years ago, even here in Denver. And so we have to admit that there is kind of a historical moment in our culture that pulls out, it draws out from us different characteristics that would cause us to say, that is a good friendship. It's not always quite the same. So, but in spite of all of the diversity that you might see, see, Christianity speaks to so many diverse places and so much it transcends time in many ways. So you have to be wise enough to step back and say, well, what is it really saying about this? And I, I believe there are four principles that are particularly significant to each of us in our culture today. In other words, if you were to kind of carve off some of the stuff that might make a friendship excellent in Africa but not, or Europe and maybe not make it work here. I, I think you kind of boil it down to these four things. The first is identity. And I don't, mean your, I, I don't mean the identity of other people. I mean your own. In order to have deep and meaningful friendships, we're going, we, ha we have to understand who we are. We have to understand way, where we're going in life. A friend recently told me, just like in the last week, he said, if you have no idea where you're going, any old path will do. Some of you probably got that. Um, it's just like starting a road trip and you don't have any destination. Any road is going to be sufficient, right? Because you don't know if it's going closer or further away. See, friendship in many ways is like getting dropped in the middle of the ocean and you're, you're almost paralyzed. You're afraid to start swimming because you could quite possibly be swimming further out to sea rather than getting closer to the shore. And so this sense of identity is important for us. When the prophet Amos posed the question in Amos 3.3, he said, can two walk together except they be agreed? He was talking about far more, far more than crossing paths with people. He was talking about the whole trajectory of life. And he said, how long can they walk together unless they go in the same, they're going towards the same destination? And so, he, he was talking about our passions and our purpose in life. And I, I think it allows us to basically make this deduction. If, if you have no idea who you are or where you're going in life, the likelihood of you having the kinds of friendships that you really long for is slim and none. Because anybody could fit. And anybody that you might need could actually not fit until you actually know who you are. Conversely, if you are really able to know who you are and where you're going, there's a natural sense of alignment that emerges in our lives that causes us to really be grateful and walk closely together with those people that are, are in alignment with what we're, go what we're doing and where we're going. So identity is an important thing. The second thing is vulnerability. In Genesis 2.25, it describes 
the first man and the woman that said they were naked and they were unashamed. Now, I don't believe when Moses was recording that that he was just talking about physical nakedness and sex and marriage. I, I think he was talking about a dynamic that's essential to every human relationship that's ever of any value. He was basically saying you're going to have to be open. You're going to have to expose yourself, not physically, but emotionally, or you're never going to ever have any depth. Well, why is that? Why would that be true? Well, I, I, I think in this sense it's very analogous to what happens in my counseling office oftentimes. Um, I'll, I, I usually, during, during the intake, I'll, I'll ask people questions almost to the point that they become frustrated with me. And they'll, sometimes they'll say, how much do you want to know? And my response is typically, well, that's probably enough. And they think I'm kind of sadistic or whatever, and they say, well, why did you do that? And I said, it's for this simple reason. You need to know that I know. It's for your sake, not for mine. And again, the question is, why is that important that I know that you know? I said, if, if you know that you haven't shared everything with me, every time, I encur every, every time I try to give you encouragement, you're thinking, he wouldn't be encouraging me if he knew the whole story. Every time I give you a, a, an assignment or something to do, you're thinking, why the heck do I have to do this? He doesn't even know what's happened. Now, when you pull that over into a friendship, and you know you haven't been transparent, what is the friendship built on? See, you know it's speculative. You know it's fraught with a whole bunch of guesswork because you know that they don't really know who you actually are. So how, how in the world do you expect your friendships to be deep if you're not vulnerable? Because you're, you're not allowing anyone to befriend the real you. Without vulnerability, our relationships we built on speculation and uncertainty since that person really doesn't know. Our, value, our society, one thing that is writ large in our society today is that we tend to say we value at least being authentic. If we are not secure enough in the relationship to be vulnerable, it is very unlikely that others will per perceive us to be sincere. In other words, they will know that they don't know us. And because of that, they won't want to be close friends. And so we've seen identity, we've seen vulnerability. Third, courage. Now, this one I think might be one of the biggest of everything that I'll talk to you about. The most meaningful fr friendships that we will ever know in our lives are the ones that are reciprocal. That means they go both ways. Um, in every sense of the word, we must learn to be our friend's friend. We have to learn how to be our friend's friend, which means to some degree the relationships that we cherish the most are going to have to have their center in the needs of the other person instead of ourselves. That doesn't mean they don't reciprocate, but it means that our perspective is oriented towards their needs, very similar to what Paul wrote in the second chapter of Philippians. And that means that basically you have to possess the courage to tell a friend when you think they're wrong when they've hurt us, when they've made decisions that we don't agree with, you have to be willing to step up and say it. Now, that doesn't mean that you have a license to be a bully. Some Christians kind of correlate those two. It doesn't mean that. 
But it does mean that we have to be willing to wound a friend when we deeply perceive that it's in their best interest. Faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. I, I fear that oftentimes we appear in our friendships more like the enemy that's always kissing than a friend that is willing to wound. Now, I, I think two things emerge when courage is infused in a friendship. Number one is the most obvious. I think it will allow others to know, our friends to know what we really think. It will allow them to, to be able to appraise when our feelings are hurt, when we've been offended, when we don't agree with them. But that's just the first part. You see, the second benefit that comes, I think, is something that we don't really expect. It allows them to know when we're wrong. You see, when you have the courage to share with your friend that you disagree with them, she might very well convince you that you are pretty screwed up and that you concluded something that was outrageously wrong. But until you had the courage to tell her, you didn't even have the platform or the circumstance in which she could point that out to you. And so for those of you that have never mustered the courage to be this kind of a friend, you don't know if you're right or wrong, which allows you to keep merrily going down the river thinking that you're always right about other people. But for those of you that have deep courage forged into your friendships, you begin to realize that maybe half the time you're not near as smart as you thought you were. And the other person oftentimes can offer explanation and they can offer information that wasn't, you weren't privy to to make your conclusion. But until you brought it to them, they couldn't even speak to it. They had no idea you were harboring those kinds of suspicions. And so both things happen. There's a cathartic event in the sense that you're able to say, listen, I, this, I've, been, I've been worried about this for weeks. I've been praying about it. I've been reading and everything else. I just have to tell you, man, this guy that you're dating is a jerk. And immediately there's a benefit that comes. Not only is the vulnerability wrapped into that, there is an opportunity for her now to speak to you and to be able to explain to you why she thinks the way she thinks. And there is an engagement on a human level that I fear many of us have never known. Many of us. So identity, vulnerability, courage, and then the last one is wisdom. Now, th this one I almost joined together, but I I, every, every once in a while I'll do that, and somebody says, these are singular. Why did you put two together? I don't know that you can separate wisdom from courage or vice versa. True and meaningful relationships will require wisdom. In Proverbs 15, 2, it says, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge. To commend something means simply to make it attractive as opposed to off-putting. And so there's something about a, a human being that has wisdom in her speech that makes truth commendable. Now, the reason that this is, a, this is kind of a intertwined with courage is that Wisdom will allow you to persuade your friend that what you're saying is just not coming from a mean spirit, that there's some validity to it. Whereas if you don't have any wisdom, even if you're right, you still sound like you're wrong, even if you're right. What a terrible thing. Put yourself in that scenario that you can see someone marching towards 
a disaster. And you, you know it. But the lack of wisdom makes you entirely incapable of convincing them. Oh, you go. You, you, you get all sweaty under the armpits and everything, and you finally tell them what you think, but you're so bombastic in the way that you do it that they're just pissed off at you. There's no persuasion that comes from that. And so you have to have identity. You have to have vulnerability. You have to have courage, and you have to have wisdom if you really are sincerely committed to having quality friendships. Ultimately, all relationships are messy. And there's no way to engage them without putting ourselves at risk. Did you hear that? You can't have friends and play it safe. You just can't. If you're going to play it safe, do everybody a favor and just stay in your apartment. Don't even get an animal because they cost you something. However, given the need that we have for meaningful community in our lives, we mustn't ever conclude that we can do without them. They're a necessary risk to our human existence. Now, this last quote from Carlin Flores' article captures, I think, this tension, the challenge that friendships pose, but the value and the promise that they bring. This is what she says. She says, dealing with bad friends, getting dumped by them and feeling disappointed with them is a stressful part of life, and it can harm your body and mind. It's, it's a threat itself. Yet having no friends at all is a far worse fate. Imagine a child's desperation for a playmate or a teenager's deep longing for someone who gets her, or an adult's realization that there is no one with whom he can share a failure or even a success. Loneliness is as painful as extreme thirst or hunger. John Cassiopo, a professor of sociology at the University of Chicago, has found associations between loneliness and depression, obesity, alcoholism, cardiovascular problems, sleep dysfunction, high blood pressure, the progress, uh, progression of Alzheimer's disease, cynical worldviews, and suicidal thoughts. But if you have friend problems, you have friends. That means you're pretty lucky. That quote captures it pretty well. Friendships, perhaps like nothing else in our lives, represent tremendous risk and tremendous reward. And as Christians, we should be the best friends of all. All right, let me take a couple questions quickly and I'll be done. How do we differentiate between bad friends from whom we should distance ourselves and broken, unhealthy people that God still calls us to love and to be rubbed into, salt to the earth? That is a remarkably insightful question. I ask myself, okay, if I was listening to all this data, all this research, if I was listening to why wouldn't you just play it safe? As I just said, I don't, I don't think you can. I guess the rule of thumb that I would give you is, is simply this. Can you be a benefit when you reach that person in need? Or do you become a liability? Can you actually reach, I always use that idea of the trams that you write at DIA and Conservative Christians are like, if the bar represented Scripture, 
conservative Christians are so obsessed oftentimes with, with stability that they're hanging onto the bar with both hands. Their luggage is rolling around all over the floor, and as long as they're just staring at the bowl. Now, a lot of liberal Christians, they don't need the bar. The bar is the Bible. Um, and so they're just staggering around just as unstable as everybody else. And I think the proper picture is a person who has one hand on the bar and the other hand is stretching as far as she possibly can to help as many people as possible. But according to this, this question probes something. Can you help them or do you make them worse? Where you can help, you need to help. But if, you, if your involvement in the situation is going to make it worse, then don't do that to them. If you're going to jump in and they're going to take you down, then you need to count the cost. And as I said in the very beginning, it's hard for some of us as Christians. We get kind of Pollyannish that we can have as many people in lane one and two as we possibly want, and we don't. It just compromises all the other relationships in lane one and two. So I think you need to know yourself well enough to know whether you can help them or whether you're going to hurt them. Next question. Regarding the frenemies in our lives, how do we know when to continue pursuing a true friendship or when to detach and not have these people even in the friend category? Wow. That is another really good question. I, I'm going to bring a lot to bear on that question. Given the diversity of the way f the term for friend is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I, I think we have to admit that it, it refers to a broad range of people. It would be simplistic, actually, to say, okay, here, here's friend and all of these others we need to find some other term for. It's used interchangeably with too many different things. And I don't think that there's any wrong in you actually maintaining a friend at work even though you don't like him. And you just, I, I think there has to be some integrity in the sense that you're not pretending like he's your best friend. You're not causing him to think that as soon as you have extra Bronco tickets, he's going to be the one you call. For Bronco fans, that should mean a lot. Um, but my, my, my point is, is that we can be honest with people that are even in our frenemy camp. I have, I have frenemies. I have people that I work with in ministry that I would consider like frenemies. I am not sending them cards. I don't send anybody cards. Uh, um, <laughs> Yeah, so that doesn't really work, does it? Um, I, I, I think it's okay. I just don't think you should be fraudulent. Just because you've committed to being nice and cordial and considering them actually kind of a friend doesn't mean that you should mislead them. It does, it, that doesn't mean that you should cut them off at the ankles either, but you should be able to be cordial in your interaction. They should actually... Let me put this another way. If you really are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, people are going to want to be around you, right? They're going to perceive if all of these people are, are gravitating towards ambivalent friendships, they should see, dude, I would love to know how you think 
There's something, I listened to you talk in our staff meetings, I listened to your perspectives, and I watched how you overcame that offense about that person that tried to get your job, and I want to know what you want to know. That doesn't immediately put a person in lane two. And so be honest, be open, have integrity, even with frenemies. Last question. How do we gently demote friends in a loving, God-glorifying way? You can't. You can't. Look, I, I don't get on Facebook. I've, I, I think I've got a Facebook account, and some people send me friend stuff all the time. It's like, go ahead, click on it, because I never do anything. Now, some of you are obsessed with Facebook. And I know those of you that are obsessed with Facebook, you can't unfriend someone on Facebook. Is that what they call it, unfriend? You can't unfriend somebody on Facebook without a lot of pressure. My wife has talked to me about that. What are they going to think? I said, who cares what they think? He's like, well, you don't understand. He's right, I don't understand. I don't think that you can demote a person. Now, just because your brother, you know, who you've never been very close to, him and his wife just moved to Chicago, they're kind of probably going to demote Elaine. That doesn't mean you have to send them a notification. <laughs> but you and your wife need to sit down and to say, okay, are we going to consider your brother as lane two or lane three? And there should be an agreement on your side, but again, you don't have to send a registered letter. Now, let's talk about the other side. When do you promote people? Do you send them letters when you promote them? I hope not. When we moved into the, we, we moved into the pinnacle in 2010, and I, I developed strategies for the staff, because I hope nobody here is from the pinnacle. The, um, <laughs> The Pinnacle has, has two cultures in it. The initial culture that came out when they first introduced the building is pretty rich and pretty snooty, to be honest with you. And then in 2010, when everything came down, that's when the poor people like us moved in there, it created a culture clash. And I've watched congiers, I've watched support staff, maintenance people, just get abused by some people. And when I moved in, I just said, I'm promoting all of these people, even the ones I don't like, into lane three. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to know their names. I'm going to ask about their families. I'm going to ask about their vacations. And I'm going to treat them as lane three in, without expecting anything in, in kind. In other words, I'm just willing to invest in them because I think they could benefit from it. And so when you promote somebody, don't wave a flag. When you demote somebody, let it be. Because all you're doing is just, you're, all you're doing is just rectifying your perspective towards the situation as it already is, right? Instead of just naively continuing as, as if it's different than what you know to be true. And so do it both ways. There's times to promote and times to demote. But if you, if you just think you're full of crap, I would bet your lane one and two has people in it that are disappointed in you. Oh, you've got a few people that think it's kind of cool and hip to be close to you. But all the rest of the people that really need you, they don't have enough of you because you're so naive that you give yourself away to everything. That's what this is about. Great questions, by the way. Man, th those were wonderful. All right, it's 47 minutes in, so I'm going to pray. And uh, Zach and the band's going to come up and we're going to take communion. So let's pray. Father, help us in these moments. Um, 
I, I fear that this is one of those really difficult things because we all know what friends are, right? We all know. We knew since we started in kindergarten. We called this cute little girl with all the freckles on her face our friend. And ever since then, we've always had friends and enemies and all these diverse ways. But hopefully, taking this cultural dynamic and bringing it in and looking at it for a few, mom for, for a few moments through the lens of a Christian worldview, it might rectify some things. So in these moments of our kind of contemplation, show us what you would have us to do. I, I know my research and study this week in preparation for this caused me to realize I'm not near the friend I think I am. I don't even know why people would want to be close to me. But I know if they are, I need to be a good friend. And I think that that is the message that will land on every one of our hearts. So speak to us now, we pray. As we take communion, we pray that this would be a, an evidence, a testimony of Christians who come down and take a piece of bread and dip it in a, a small glass of wine, saying, that broken body and that shed blood, that's who I am. That's what I live for. Bless us in these things, we pray. We commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.